hear these words as God calls us to worship. Remember, this is an announcement. It's a declaration. This is the reason why we are here. Listen to this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you would, let's respond to this as we sing these very words that I just read to praise our our God, our King. I'd love to look with you this morning in the book of Ruth, chapter 3. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. It's also in the bulletin, what I'm going to read. Uh, John Paul left us hanging last week. He only covered most of chapter 2, so we've got to pick up there and keep the story going. So I'm going to read, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 17 through verse 5 of chapter 3. You can follow along if you so desire. You can just sit there and try to take it in. Uh, What I'm going to read to you is God's Word. And even more than that, this is the story of our people. We are connected to those that are talked about in the story in the Bible. We're all part of this amazing story that God is writing, the story of grace and redemption. Um, So hear this story. Try to take it in as much as you can. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Listen to this. And oh, by the way, we're going to pick up right where John Paul left off last week. So when uh, we start, start, uh, the verse is talking about Ruth and what she is doing. All right? So here goes. So she, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his, with his young woman, women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies." Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Let's read. I mean, excuse me. I just read. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness. We thank you for the good news that we can receive. 
So we pray that you would cause us, Holy Spirit, to hear the good news. We ask that you would further uh, help us to understand our need so that we might know and continue to grow in how much you um, are working in our lives and what you have done for us through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So here's where we're going this morning. I'm going to retell the story, and then I'm going to give you some pointed applications. All right? So those are the two things we're going to do this morning. So in order to dive into the story, let's, let's do a little background work to make sure we understand where we are in the story before we start getting into this, what I just read to you today. So uh, if you've forgotten or if you're new here, uh, Ruth has this, these four chapters are primarily communicating one theme. It's the theme of redeeming love. In every chapter, they all fit together to communicate something about redeeming love. So that's what we're thinking about together. So here's where the story started. If you go back and read chapter 1, this is what went down. Uh, there was a famine in the land, and this, there was a family of four that decided they should leave. They should leave Jerusalem and travel to this little place called Moab, which is about 50 miles away from Jerusalem. So this little family of four left Jerusalem and traveled to Moab. Oh, by the way, here are the names of those who are in the family. The father was named Elimelech, the mother was named Naomi, and they had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And they all traveled 50 miles to Moab because it was in Moab where they would be able to find something to, to eat and find some new way to live. Ten years later, they heard that there was food being provided again in Jerusalem. So they decided to return. Only the family had dramatically changed. In that 10-year period of time, Naomi was the only one who was still alive. Her husband had died, and her two sons had died. It had been quite a 10-year stretch, huh? You look back over your lives, you think, man, a lot's happened in 10 years. You can relate to this story, perhaps. <clears throat> you can relate to thinking about your life, thinking back through what's happened over the last year, five years, 10 years. So Naomi is traveling from Moab back to Jerusalem, and she doesn't have her son, she doesn't have her other son, she doesn't have her husband. But who she does have are her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And somewhere along the way, she stops, and she looks at her daughters-in-law and says to them, hey, you should go back to your homeland, meaning you should go back to Moab. I am no good to you alive. If you stay with me and go back to Jerusalem, I am in worse shape than you are. If you go back to your people, at least you'll be in a familiar place. At least you'll have your family. At least you have the opportunity to marry again to someone that you know. I can never marry again. I can't have any children. I'm going back to a place and I will be destitute. So go back to what is familiar for you. So Orpah did. But her other daughter-in-law, Ruth, did not. Matter of fact, Ruth decided, I will stay with you. I want your God, and I want his people. So Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem. Kind of an interesting place that many of us know about, right? Especially this time of year we think about. Well, here's another little interesting tidbit. Naomi had been through so much over the past 10 years. 
that at the end of chapter 1, what she says is, please don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which actually means bitter. Meaning that as she looked back over the last 10 years of her life, she had come across difficult thing after difficult thing after difficult thing. We end chapter 1 with Naomi being extremely bitter. So chapter 2 opens up, and what happens is that Ruth and Naomi begin to glean, and they begin to try to find sustenance. We'll get to that idea of gleaning for a minute if you weren't here last week. It'll be in a, in a little bit. And Ruth and Naomi are gleaning in the fields of Boaz. And Ruth and Naomi uh, talk about what they're doing. They figure out what the best thing for them to do is. They continue to work. And so Naomi at some point ends up going home and Ruth stays and continues to work in Boaz's fields day after day. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 17 of chapter 2. Ruth had been working all day long. And here she was, returning home after a full day of work. Uh, the scholars say different things about how much she was actually bringing with her. Some say she was bringing 20 pounds of grain. Others say she's bringing 60 pounds of grain. She had been working hard. And she returns to Naomi's house and they start talking. And Naomi says to Ruth, where were you today? Where did you work today? And Ruth says, well, I was in Boaz fields today. I gleaned more today. As a matter of fact, after work was over, I had dinner with Boaz and I got a little to-go box and I brought it for you. So here, not only can, you, can I share with you the grain that I gleaned today, but I can give you some of, the, some of what I ate for dinner. You can tell they were obviously close and that Ruth was thinking about Naomi regularly. So they begin to talk and Ruth hears these words from Naomi. Basically, Naomi says, Ruth, this is great. You are hanging with Boaz. He is actually a closer relative to us. You need to keep going back to him. That's how chapter 2 ends. Chapter 3 begins with this. Naomi has decided she has a plan. She knows that Boaz is somewhat of a relative for her, and she starts thinking in her head and scheming, you know what? I want to do everything I can to make sure that you, Ruth, connect with Boaz. I'm going to do everything I can to help you so that you and Boaz have a relationship. Now, just in case it hasn't been stated yet or you haven't picked up on in the reading, there was a spark between Ruth and Boaz. They liked each other. If you go back and read chapter 2, you can tell they had feelings for one another. It almost happened from the beginning. Now, just at this point, I want to pause and say, have you forgotten what it's like to think about why you like the person that you're with? When you look around, whether it's at work, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your close friends, whether it's your family, have you forgotten why you like them? You know, oftentimes in our lives, we can just get into a routine and forget about why we like people. You know that? We just start doing the same things over and over and over, and we forget why we like our spouse or what it was like when we first met them or what it was like when we knew that maybe they were the one that we wanted to pursue. Have you forgotten that? If you have, take some time and think about that. 
God has given us relationships to enjoy. And it's been a long time since you have told someone that you love deeply why you love them and how you love them and what it was like when you first met them. Do that. I remember when I first met Jenny. Of course, this text, I'm trying to put into practice what I'm telling you to do. I remember when I first met Jenny, I just thought to myself, wow, this person is special. We just communicated well. I don't know what happened since then because we always struggle with communicating. No, I'm just kidding. But there was something different. There was something special. Uh, and that's something that I need to constantly remember. It's important. Anyway, so Naomi has a plan. And this is what she tells Ruth. Ruth, it's uh, the season which everything is being harvested, and that means that Boaz is going to be working late. And so I want you to go to his house late at night. I want you to find out where he's working, what part of the field, where, what, part of the, what part of his plantation he's working. I want you to go. I want you to wait until he's finished his job for the day. I want you to wait until after he eats. I want you to wait until after he drinks. I want you to wait until uh, he goes to his bed and lies down. And then after that happens, Ruth, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the place where he's going to sleep for the night. And I want you to, whatever blankets he has on, I want you to uncover his feet. And I want you, Ruth, to lay down on top of what is exposed. And I want you to cover Boaz with your body. And you can understand that Ruth is kind of like, what? Because Naomi's response to her is basically, just do this, Ruth. And he'll tell you everything that you need to do. How about that? So she does. So she shows up where he's working. After dinner, after everything else, Boaz is laying down. He comes to, she comes to Boaz, uncovers his feet, lays on top of his feet at least. And then about midnight, Boaz wakes up. Now why it took him that long, I've got no idea. But he wakes up, and he, he's startled, the text says. And he says, who are you? What are you doing? And Ruth says to him, Boaz, I want you to cover me with your wings. Now, that sounds like really weird language, I know. But what she was basically saying to Boaz is this. It's this direct. It's this pointed. It's this clear. She was proposing to Boaz. She was saying, Boaz, I want you to marry me. I want you to marry me. Now, that is all put under this language of redeemer. Now, when you go back and read the story, you find out, and when you look in the Old Testament, you find out even more about what this idea of redeemer means. So let's make sure we understand what's going on. Ruth used this idea of redeemer for at least a couple reasons. One is that Naomi told Ruth that Boaz was one of their kinsmen redeemers at the end of chapter 2. That's why Ruth is, that's why Naomi is so excited. Another reason why we know she uses this language is because when Boaz heard in chapter 2 
who Ruth was and what she had done and what she had left her family and she had decided to stick with Naomi and live with Naomi. When Boaz heard that that was the kind of person that Ruth was, this is how Boaz described, Naomi, described Ruth. He said, you have decided to bring your life under the shadow of the wings of God. In other words, Boaz was saying, Ruth, when you left your family and you decided to be with Naomi, when you left your family and decided that you were going to follow God and his people, you were declaring that you had been redeemed by God. And Ruth knows that that's how he talks and what he's thinking about. And so she tells him in her proposal, hey, I want you to redeem me. I want you to marry me. Now, here's what else we find out about this idea of redeem in the Old Testament. When God's people entered the promised land, what God did is he wanted the land divided up and distributed amongst the families so that what God told them would happen way back with Abraham would be true. He would have a people, they would have a land, and they would have a particular portion of their land with which to live and grow and build a life. But sometimes things like this story happen, meaning Ruth, excuse me, Naomi and Elimelech and their two boys realized they couldn't make it. So what they had to do is sell their land and go to Moab. So when they did that, they lost their land. And now Naomi is coming back and she has nothing other than Ruth. They have no access to anything. And God had a provision built into his view of community to take care of situations like this with Naomi, like this with Ruth. It's this idea of a redeemer. You see, the way that God looks at community and the way that he is built into his view of community is that when people are marginalized or suffering or they go through hardship or they get in really dark times, he has provided a way for them to be provided for. Gleaning was one way. Remember that from last week? Gleaning was when all those who owned land could not fully harvest the totality of their land. They had to leave the edges of their land open so that people that were marginalized, so that people that were poor, so that people that had no source of acquiring anything could go to these farms and they could actually glean the corners of property and they could provide for themselves and their family. That's built into God's view of community. But it's not only gleaning. It's also this idea of redeemer. You see, built in to this way in which God wanted his people to live was that a relative could represent another relative. And they could represent this relative for four things. If someone was murdered in the family, then that relative could step up and say, hey, I want justice for my family member. They're not around to enact justice and plead for justice anymore. And as a family member, I want justice. I want to know what happened with this person being murdered. There needs to be an investigation. There needs to be justice. It also meant that a redeemer, if someone in their family became, uh, 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 incurred tremendous debt, 
this redeemer could actually pay the debt for their family member. At their own expense, they could pay the debt of a family member. It also meant that if a family member lost land, that this close family member, the redeemer, could actually buy the land back, which in Naomi's Naomi's case meant that Boaz had the right to go to the person that Naomi sold the land to and say, I am buying this back for my relative Naomi. And it also meant that if someone died in your family, that you could actually marry the widow and you could therefore keep the family name. You could keep the family going. You could potentially have children so that the family would then be intact again. Does that make sense? So here you have Boaz being able to function as a redeemer for Naomi and because of her connection with Naomi, Ruth. And when Ruth goes to see Boaz that night, and when she lays down over her feet and says, Boaz, I want you to cover me under your wings. You are my redeemer. She is saying, I need you to buy back land. I need you to marry me because, honey, we're going to have a family. (laughs) She's saying, I want to be with you and I want you to want me. That's the story. Let's get into our applications. I got three of them for you. Three things for you to think about. Three things to maybe wrestle with or ponder. The first application is this. Let's stop trying to sanitize the Bible. Let's stop trying to make the Bible and the stories in the Bible fit our Western individualism. Let's just let's stop trying to do that. You know, the details of what Naomi tells Ruth are these. I left some of them out when we went through the story, so I'm going to tell them to you here. Here are the details of what happened. And I'm going to need you to imagine yourself in this situation, okay? Naomi says to Ruth, yeah, I want you to go at night. But before you go, I want you to shower up. I want you to put on your best perfume. And I want you to put on your nicest clothes. And after you do all that, I want you to go to Boaz's place. And I want you to wait like we've gone through all those details. And then she does that. And she makes this proposal to Boaz. And Boaz says to her, I will, but someone else needs to be consulted first. We'll handle that tomorrow. So JP gets that next week. But after Boaz says to Ruth, if they're not willing... I'm willing to be your redeemer. Boaz says, why don't you stay the night? So she does. And then in the morning, when they wake up, Boaz says to Ruth, you know, Ruth, um, that nice cloak you're wearing, let me, let me fill it with grain. Because you leave it in the morning, I don't want people to think what they might think if you just Walk out of the house. So you take this cloak full of grain and you leave. That way if people see you, what they'll think is, oh, well, she was up early and she came to get extra supplies. Friends, let's not try to sanitize this story. Let's not try to make it fit our Western American individualism, even at times subcultures of Christianity. Let's not try to do that. This story 
We, we can't, you can't read this story and think, oh, there's nothing wrong that went on here. We simply don't know. Does that make sense? We don't know. Let's not try to act like Boaz and Ruth here were being heroic. Let's not try to act like they didn't do anything wrong at all. Let's just leave it open-ended to say, I don't really know what happened. But in my life, as much as I was tempted to be with my wife before we were married, when Jenny said yes, that didn't make things easier for me. How about you? We have to stop trying to sanitize the scriptures because the Bible is always inviting us to be honest about who we are and to be honest about our lives. The Bible never pretends that we are better people than we actually are. And we don't need to try to sanitize the Bible, make it fit in with what we've been taught should or could happen. Just read it as is. And whatever details are there that we don't know, just admit we don't know. We don't know what Ruth and Boaz actually did. We don't know that they didn't do anything. But we know that this was Naomi's plan of how she's going to make this work. We know what we might have been tempted to do if we had been in similar situations like many of us have. Friends, let's not try to sanitize the Bible, okay? Let's take it for what it is. Two. There's always room for growth. Always room for growth. Everywhere, in every direction, there's always room for growth. Think about Naomi. If you go back and read this story, and you read at the end of chapter 1 that she had endured so many hardships in life, she was bitter. Doesn't that make sense? Can't you relate to that? I hope you can, because it's real. But when you come here to the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, do you see what she's doing? This is what oftentimes happens with us. We go from being really bitter people and we decide that, well, I'm ready to get out of my bitterness. And so what do we do when we're coming out of being so bitter? We try to control things. We try to manipulate stuff. And that's at least plausible here with Naomi. We know she was bitter. We know she was, well, we'll get to that in a second. She was trying to control this situation. And oh, by the way, let's not be too harsh on her. Let's not be too harsh with her. Her back was up against the wall. She was the most marginalized person possible in that society. She had no hope for anything. Of course she's going to be strategic. Of course she's going to think about what she, can she do to possibly continue to survive, right? Does this sound crazy to you? This is exactly the way we live. It doesn't justify what she did. It doesn't justify the fact that we want to control things. It doesn't justify the fact that we try to manipulate things. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that Naomi was growing. I'm just saying we do the same things. It doesn't make it right, but it sure helps us understand people, doesn't it? 
sure helps in understanding other people that we think about our own lives, doesn't it? What about Ruth and Boaz? All right, let's just say this up front. Unwise, what they did, unwise, not good, not the pattern to follow. Okay, this is not God saying, okay, you know, y'all have at it. Go ahead. You're not married yet, but go for it. If that's what happens, then we don't know. Just saying the situation itself, unwise. There's always room for growth. Always room for growth. And here's the bottom line about this, realizing that there's always room for growth. God is at work. No matter what actions happened or not, no matter what the motivations were, no matter if this was driven by uh, control or by manipulation, no matter what, God was at work and he had to redeem it all. (laughs) He had to redeem it all. The main character of the story is always God. Always. In every story. And why we feel so compelled to try to find a human hero in every story blows my mind. I don't know why I try to do that all the time. We want to read these stories and say, well, Boaz, my goodness, he's the guy you follow in this one. Or Naomi, she's the one you want to be like. Why do we always try to find a human hero? Up to this point in the history of the Bible, every one of God's people was deeply flawed. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, go through them all. They're all messed up. Why would we think anything would be different in this story? God is the main character. There's always room for growth because at the end of the day, if we want to grow, we got to understand this story is not about us. It's not about us trying to be like someone in the story. It's about us seeing God and realizing that he is at work through all kinds of things that are happening in life and he's redeeming them all. Do you realize how much freedom is in that? You don't have to read the Bible story and think, man, I just got to be more like Ruth. Oh, I just got to be more like Naomi. I just need to be like Bo. It's about God. Have I, have I hammered that home? Have I beat that horse enough? All right, number three. Practice the gospel. Practice the gospel. Boaz, in the story, was the redeemer, right? He's the guy who's a close relative. He was the one who was willing to say, yes, outside of this little thing I need to investigate, Ruth, outside of that, I'm willing to buy back land for you and your mother-in-law. Yes, I'm willing to marry you. I'm willing to take you into my family. I'm willing, if God blesses, for us to have children and to continue to grow the family. Yes, I'm willing to do all that. But... I guess I'll say it this way because of time. There are two ways that we can see that Boaz directly lives out the gospel. And these need to be true in our lives. Uh, The first one is this. You remember this phrase that we used a few months ago? It was an application I was, you know, I was trying to present. It's one that keeps coming back to me. It's, It's when we talked about this idea. Put that on my account. Do you remember that? That's what Boaz was doing. He's living out the gospel by looking for opportunities to say, put that on my account. And let me tell you about Boaz's life. 
real quickly if I can. God had so ordered Boaz's life that Boaz wasn't every day thinking about how he could maximize all of his profits. Remember? The way God had ordered their lives was that you couldn't maximize the amount of land you had. You always had to leave some for people who had nothing so that they could come and get some, right? He wasn't incessantly thinking about himself. The way that God had ordered Boaz's life, he was looking for people to help. He was looking for people to uh, uh, show mercy toward. When Ruth and Naomi come up to Boaz to glean from his land uh, in in chapter 2, Boaz isn't there at first. It's, It's those that work for Boaz that recognize this. And why would they be kind to Ruth and Naomi? Why would they be kind to the other people that came to glean? Because their boss man, Boaz, cared about people, and they knew it. Boaz was constantly looking for ways to say, put that on my account. And when Ruth comes to him and says, I want to be married and I need you to buy back land, I want to marry you, he's like, put it on my account. Let's do this. He was constantly looking for people to show mercy to and to bless and to love. And here's the second thing in him living out the gospel. It's not just that he's willing to say, put that on my account, which we have to do all the time in our relationships. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to say, just put that on my account, because that means you've got to absorb the weight and the consequences of whatever they did that's wrong. Here's the, here's the other thing he did. He caught people doing good. When Jenny and I, when our kids were younger, um, we were talking to some friends, and ours, friends of ours about parenting. You know, it's the thing in which um, at least one of the main things that I feel most inadequate about. Always wondering, what in the world do I do with my kids? How can I connect with my girls at a deeper level? How can they know that I really do love them? And one of our friends said to us, Dave, catch your kids doing good. And you know why he'd say that. Because I'm really good at catching my kids doing bad. How about you? Is it hard for you to catch people doing good? Is it a lot easier for you to analyze whenever somebody's doing something wrong? Those of you that are on social media, those of you that use all those platforms, do they communicate that you catch people doing good? Or most of the time, are they just a platform for you to catch people doing bad? And you just want to make sure everybody hears it and knows it and sees it. We live in a very, very negative culture and one way we live out the gospel is we catch people doing good. One of the ways that I've tried to be a better parent is to try to catch my kids doing good. And I'm not very good at doing that. But I try. I try to encourage them. What's Boaz doing when he hears about Ruth's story? He goes to her and he says, you done good. <laughs> He's looking for people to say, yes, you are right. Yes, this is good. What you have done is right. What you are doing is good. He's catching people doing good. You want to have an impact at work? You want to have an impact in your relationship? You want to have an impact with your children? You want to have an impact uh, in your neighborhood? Be willing to say, put that on my account. Be willing to live out catching people doing good. Practice the gospel. 
All right, we're ready to go. That's good. Now that you have your three things to think about, we're done, right? What are we missing? Jesus. Why is it that we're so bent on let's go through a passage and understand it, and then we get our action items, and then we're done? Do you understand that none of those three things that I gave you to think about application-wise are going to help your life at all if you don't connect all that you are to Jesus and all that I am to Jesus? You want to, sanitize, you want to stop sanitizing the Bible? You'll never do that until you realize the Bible is about Jesus. You want to admit that there's always room for growth in your life and in my life? That will only happen as we are connected and stay connected to Jesus. Because if you aren't connecting growth with Jesus, what happens is you get your marching orders and you say, okay, back on the treadmill, treadmill this week. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do this more. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stop doing that. If you think that growth means you just got to do this or not do that, then you're just heaping shame upon yourself and guilt and being motivated by the fact you don't want this shame or doing this differently because you got all this guilt. If we just listen to these application things and walk away, we have changed and we're trying to alter the message of Christianity into a self-help moralism. We've got to have Jesus. And if we're going to practice the gospel, if, it's, if it is ever going to be a possibility that this week, when a lot of us are spending time with family, as chaotic and difficult as that can be at times, if there's ever a place when we need to say to one another, I'll put that on my account, I forgive you for that, say that internally, sometimes out loud, sometimes you got to keep it in, then I'm willing to absorb what that means, or I'm going to catch this person doing good and say that to them. If we are ever going to be able to do that, if we're ever going to be able to live out the gospel, it's only because we are living in the gospel. Do you see? Unless we're hearing Jesus say to us, put that on my account. We'll never be able to do it for someone else. Unless, we're be able, we're, unless we hear Jesus saying to us, you're doing the right thing. The ultimate statement of that. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what awaits all of us. And unless we're hearing that all the time, there's no way we're going to be able to look at other people and say, you've done good. So we've got to find Jesus. Boaz is the obvious connection, right? He's the redeemer. He's the one that represented the family, and he's the one that was willing to redeem all of their troubles. And all of that is wrapped within a very risque story that is certainly scandalous. Isn't it? But do you know what's more scandalous than what we have here in chapter 3? The gospel. Do you know how scandalous it is that a perfect being, Jesus, would die for people like us who are radically broken and radically rebellious? And Jesus would die for people like us we don't even think someone needs to die for us. We think we're pretty good. We're not even thinking about God that much. And Jesus died for people like that, like you and me. 
And we don't live every day thinking, well, someone died in my place, therefore I should function this way, do we? It is not on our minds very much that Jesus had to die for us and that he did that willingly. That's the scandal of the gospel. If you read this and think it's scandalous, you better buckle up to understand the gospel because what Jesus did is far more scandalous, far more extraordinary. And when he died, he didn't just die to absorb the wrath of a holy God because we had murdered that relationship. He didn't die so that, you know, we would get this little piece of land somewhere. He died so that he would bring joy to the world. And he would bring joy to the world as far as the curse is found. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our Redeemer. We pray that you would help us, that we would grow in our understanding of how to find you in the stories of the Bible. That you would keep us from just thinking, what are the action items, and then thinking, we can go do it. Would you help us to connect with you? And by abiding with you and connecting with you, these other things will flow out of our repentance and faith. Thank you for redeeming us and for bringing joy to the world as far as the curse is found. We pray this so that you would get all glory, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. But don't leave here today without knowing that God is committed to blessing his people. He's committed to working out all of his purposes in your life because of what Jesus has done. So receive this blessing and try to live as if you actually believe it's true this week. And keep coming back. Keep coming back to the God of grace. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you and he is going to be gracious to you. In the age to come, forever and ever, even now, his presence is with you. And one day, he'll make all things new and there will be peace because our Christ is alive. Amen. Go in peace. And if you would...